Good morning. What is going on, Valley family? Great to be with you here today. My name is Pastor Randy. I'm the executive pastor here at Valley Christian Church. We're giving Dr. Greg a well-deserved week off. Uh, I'm going to be with you here talking, uh, talking a little bit about the Beatitudes today. We're in our Beatitudes Blessed Life series. First, I want to say, man, we had a, a, an exciting announcement last week that Dr. Greg talked about. It is that on July the 19th, we're going to be having our first 9 and 11 a.m. services live in person and quite a while since March. So uh, I'm not going to spoil that. I'm not going to, you know, dump all the announcement right now and, and give all the details, but more details forthcoming. Uh, just wanted to say that we are going to be having service soon here in person, July the 19th. You'll hear more about that pretty soon. All right, cool. Now, as I said, we are in uh, week number two of a series called The Blessed Life. Dr. Greg kicked that off last week. Uh, he talked about, um, he just talked about his title was actually called Upside Down Living. Upside Down Living. And I liked it so much, I'm going to use it here in a second. But uh, before I get into that, what a beatitude is, I thought it would be helpful that we, uh, we talked about and reviewed what a beatitude meant. So a beatitude is a state of supreme happiness or blessedness. A state of supreme happiness or blessedness. Now Jesus was a master, was a master at turning perceptions that we have of this world upside down. Jesus was the master of, of, of kind of like flipping things on its head where, where the world might think one thing, Jesus had another thing to say. Well, the world might have thought one thing was true and Jesus would come along and be like, actually it's the opposite that's true. So when you listen to the teachings of Jesus, you see that he looked at the world with an entirely different lens. It was upside down. It was upside down. So Jesus speaks about and teaches us that we are called to upside down living. We're called to upside down living. We're not supposed to do things the way that the world does. We're not supposed to use the same wisdom that the world has and that the world uses. The ideas, the no-brainers that the world might have. The world might be like, yes, this is the way to go. You should do it this way. It's like this. Everybody knows it's like this. Are you dumb? It's like this. You're supposed to do it this way. But we're supposed to be a people that turns and takes that and says, well, what, is, what does Jesus have to say about that? Right? What, what, is, what does the word have to say about that? We're supposed to live. We're called to live differently. We're supposed to live upside down, upside down living, right? So the world, for example, will say something like, you know, gimme, 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 gimme. It's all about getting more and getting more and getting more and gimme, gimme, gimme. And Jesus says what? He says very famously, he says, well, it's more blessed to give than receive, right? So the world's kind of mantra of give, uh, gimme, 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 gimme is different, right, than what Jesus has to say. It's different. Upside down living is what we're called to. And we're going to explore that a little bit more uh, in this message here this morning. Um, he flipped the script, everybody. Jesus flipped the script. So uh, our first beatitude that we're going to be talking about last week was an overview of what the beatitudes are. Uh, the first one that we're actually going to talk about, the first one that Jesus mentions is what we're going to go into right now. Uh, and we're going to find out what does it even mean here to be blessed, right? A beatitude means happiness or blessedness. Well, what's it even mean to be blessed according to Jesus? Because maybe the world has a completely other definition of blessed and Jesus wants to reveal to us, well, that's not really what it means to be blessed. I want to teach you the truth about being blessed. So blessed, let's go to the Greek. Let's go to the Greek, baby. Greek for blessed that Jesus uses is makarios. 
Makarios, right? And actually, the cool thing about, about uh, ancient Greek is that there's plenty of writings from even before the time of Jesus, even before the New Testament was written, which was written in Greek. There's, there's old Greek, ancient Greek, Greek uh, poets like uh, Homer or maybe the philosophers like Plato, and we have some of their works still to this day, and their works use the exact word for blessed that Jesus used. They use the word makarios, makarios. So you can go back to those works, and you can see what those guys referred to as being blessed in their time. And you can see a, a couple of distinct different things. For one, they called the gods, right? The lowercase g, like they're, they're, uh, they're gods. Their gods were considered blessed. They were considered makarios because, because they existed on a higher plane than human beings and they didn't have to worry. They didn't have to worry anything about sickness or death or need or wants or shelter or, or food or any of those things. They existed on a completely higher plane than human beings do and therefore the gods with the lowercase g, the gods, were considered makarios. They were considered blessed. They were above and beyond the concerns of this world. And that's why the, uh, the ancient Greeks considered them makarios, considered them blessed. As time went on, uh, Homer and Plato and these other Greeks, they, they also mentioned other things that were makarios. And, and what came to be known as makarios was also the wealthy, the upper crust of society, like in the same way that the, uh, the gods were like on a different plane and they didn't have to worry about sickness and disease. They didn't have to worry about food and clothing and shelter. In the same way, the upper crust, the wealthy of society were considered makarios because they had so much funds, they had so much wealth to them that they didn't worry about the same thing that the normal everyday man did either. They were above and beyond the plane of normal human existence. They didn't have to worry about where their meals were coming from. They didn't have to worry about if they're going to have a job tomorrow. They didn't have to worry about the clothes on their backs or, 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 or the provision for their families. They didn't have to worry about none of that stuff. And therefore, the Greeks considered them blessed. Blessed. The third way that they used the word makarios was in something called an epitaph. And some of you, probably most of you know what an epitaph is, but an epitaph really is, is uh, what you kind of put on a tombstone, right? Somebody's tombstone. At the end of their life, somebody comes by and says, you know, here lies Randy, and, you know, he was blessed for this reason, and he was blessed for that reason. So they would talk about how, like, somebody was blessed because, you know, this guy was makarios because he had riches, or he was Makarios because he had a good spouse. Or he was Makarios because he possessed fame. Or he was blessed because he possessed celebrity. Or he was blessed because he possessed wisdom, right? It was all about what you had in life that kind of set you apart from other people. That was what made you blessed in their eyes. The have, the possession of stuff. Either you possessed enough where you existed on a different level than everybody else, or you possessed these things that made you blessed. Oh, this guy had riches. This guy had an amazing spouse. This guy had plenty of children, and therefore they were above Many other people in a certain way, they were considered blessed. That was the world's definition of makarios. That was the world's definition of blessed before the time of Jesus. And Jesus, of course, Jesus redefines what it means to be blessed. Jesus redefines what it means to be blessed. You see, man says that being full is being blessed. Man says that being rich is being blessed. Man says that having more is being blessed. But Jesus 
Jesus actually is about to turn it completely upside down when he says this very famously in the first beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Let's pick it up. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So who's he teaching here? The disciples, right? Says it right here. The disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said what? He said, blessed, makarios, are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The Greek for poor is patohos. It actually means beggar. It means beggar, and beggar has this, has this like meaning in it in the Greek word. It actually means to cower and to like tremble like this, a beggar. So blessed, blessed, fortunate, blessed are the poor, the beggar, the people that are going like this in spirit. It's a complete opposite. It's a complete flip and turnaround of what the world considered blessed up until that time. Patohos, poor, in Greek was never used in a positive way, ever, throughout history. Never once. It was always like somebody went through some problems and they were, they were reduced to begging, you know, or begging in a bad way, or beggars in a, in a, in a poor, like, kind of evil connotation where it's like, ugh, glad we're not them or whatever, right? They have nothing. And Jesus is saying, well, guess what? They have something. They're blessed. Poor, beggarly, blessed are the poor. It's like kind of an oxymoron. It's kind of like Jesus is saying, well, down is up. Or full are the empty. Or fortunate are the, are the unfortunate. Or even, I think more, more accurately here, it's, it's saying more like wealthy is the beggar. And of course, that's going to get people's attention, right? It's, of course, it's going to make people stop and be like, huh? Wealthy is the beggar? Wealthy and blessed and fortunate is the beggar? I don't know about that, Jesus. But Jesus doubles down, blessed are the poor in spirit. It was so important to Jesus that it was basically his mission statement. It was basically his mission statement. Not only was it the first of his beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, the very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not only is it the first beatitude listed, but it's also like the first thing that Jesus says when he comes on the scene in Luke chapter 4, it's like right at the beginning of his ministry, he comes to his hometown of Nazareth. And let's pick it up here. Luke chapter 4. So he goes to Nazareth where he has been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he goes into the synagogue, the temple, as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written in the book of Isaiah, right? Isaiah chapter 66. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because why? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. First thing he leads off with. I'm just kind of revealing himself in his hometown in a way, right? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And it goes on and says, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant, the synagogue attendant, and he sat down. And what do they do? The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were what? They were fastened on him. 
because they knew this was something different. They knew that this was somebody that was speaking with an authority that they could not kind of comprehend. They knew something was different about this guy. And he stands up and states his mission statement and sits down. And he sits down and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They were like, what? Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the guy that we saw running around this place when he was a kid? How is this guy going to show up and say that today that scripture is fulfilled in our hearing? And they actually like stumbled over it in a way. They couldn't handle it in a way. But it was still Jesus giving his mission statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is the first beatitude. And the first thing he has to say right here when he's kind of revealing himself is, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is the purpose, right? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because, because for the purpose of proclaiming good news to the poor. And all this other stuff that's very equally as important, I would say, but it's interesting that he kicks it off with good news. Both in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and here in Luke 4, he kicks it off with talking about good news. What is the good news, you might ask? Well, you go back to the Beatitude, it says it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's the good news. That the poor, the poor in spirit, are the owners in a way, are citizens in a way of the kingdom of heaven. That this world, that this world and its systems, that this world and this worldly identity and definition of blessedness and riches, that that world is not actually over them anymore. That they are no longer truly citizens of that world but that their value and that their identity comes from somewhere else, a supernatural world, if you will, a spiritual realm, if you will. And Jesus says the king of the kingdom of heaven has come down, has humbled himself to come before the people and scoop them up gently in his hands and say, you poor in spirit, you are blessed. Even if the world does not value that. He had come to flip it upside down and redefine what it means to be blessed. And we see here, we see here that Jesus is very concerned with the poor. But you might ask me, you might be like, hey preacher, does that mean you have to be like physically poor? Is that who he's talking about, the physically poor? Well, we all know what it means to be physically poor, at least, at least in theory, Right? But what does it mean to be poor in spirit? This is a new concept in the time of Jesus. Have you ever been physically poor, by the way? Have you ever been physically poor? It's not, it's not like a shaming thing, like if you have or you haven't. But to be physically poor means to be like, you know, means to have nothing. Like nothing, very little in your pockets, right? Very little in the bank account, obviously. Very little in way of possessions. Very little in recourses. Very little in resources to where you're almost like helpless in this like situation, I thank God sometimes, like, like I tell my story, you know, about being on the streets or whatever in my young 20s, and, and the older that I get, the more that like, yes, that was like a, like a traumatic experience in my life, 100%, but I am so grateful. In a way, I'm so grateful because, because being poor, being like homeless poor and not having anything, like all I had was the clothes on my back and a little, whatever was in my little backpack, and spoiler alert, it was empty. There was like a couple of books and a notebook up in there. That was pretty much it. To have nothing 
kind of primed me for the idea of needing a Savior, right? To have nothing physically, to need physically primed me to the idea of one day needing spiritually, understanding my spiritual need. You see, the poor understand their physical need. They understand what it's like to be hungry. They understand what it's like to be thirsty. They understand what it's like to not have clothes on their backs. They understand what it's like to not have shelter. They understand what it's, not, what it's like to not be able to provide for their families, to be desperate, to need to put that hand up, to be almost like cowering and trembling and looking for somebody to help you because you just can't do it in your own strength. Hello? The poor understand their physical need. The poor in spirit understand their spiritual need. Being in physical poverty can prime you to understand the concept of spiritual poverty. Physical poverty, like maybe back in the day in their time, it was like when the rains don't come, when the harvest isn't as full as it should be, Maybe in modern day it looks like when the bills are piling up and they can't be paid. Maybe when illness comes and it just comes and steals away our joy, steals away our, our way of making our livings. Oh Lord. When our health fails, when the people around us seem so full of blessing, but we ourselves seem so empty, what is there to do but cry out because of our physical condition? Well, ladies and gentlemen, that in a way, that is kind of like why being poor is so related to being poor in spirit, because they're pretty similar. They're not the same, but they're pretty similar. We might cry out because we are physically poor because of our physical condition, but spiritually poor we should all be walking with that. We should all be recognizing our need for a spiritual savior. We should all be recognizing in a way our spiritual bankruptcy without Jesus. Do you need to be poor to be poor in spirit? No. There's actually a number of, of examples in the Bible of, of rich people, wealthy people, who are still, by the grace of God, poor in spirit. Being physically poor isn't a prerequisite for being poor in spirit. But in some crazy upside-down way, maybe it helps. Let's take a look at an example of somebody who's poor in spirit and actually contrast them with somebody who's not. It's kind of summed up in a real neat little story here, which I think, I think the reason for this story is to show what it looks like to be poor in spirit and to show what it looks like when you are not poor in spirit. It's in Luke 18, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It's the story of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee, and they're both in the temple. Okay, so let's pick it up. To some, it starts off just like this, which, which immediately it's like going 100 miles an hour. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. Uh-oh. That doesn't sound like poor in spirit. They were confident of their own righteousness and, and, and looked down on everybody else. Jesus tells this parable. So he is telling it to people who are confident of their own righteousness and they look down on everyone else. Jesus sought out that audience and then spoke this parable to that audience. That's pretty gutsy. Jesus told this parable. Hey, listen. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee 
and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, stood by himself, and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, (laughs) these robbers, these evildoers, these adulterers. Maybe modern day, it would sound something like, God, I thank you I'm not like these other people, these robbers, these evildoers, these adulterers, these homosexuals, these divorced people, these alcoholics, these drug addicts, these Democrats, these filthy Republicans. Thank you, God, that I am not like those people. Oh, oh, you thought this was just about the time of the Pharisees. Oh, shoot, that's for our time as well. I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this guy over there, this tax collector. Man, I fast twice a week. That's twice more than anybody I know does it a week, let's just say, including myself, okay? I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. That's more than 90% of people that go to church. That's not a shot. That's actually just a statistic. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He wouldn't even look. The Pharisee was looking up saying, oh, thank you, God, that you haven't made me like these losers. Oh, thank you that I do all this stuff right. But that guy, whoo, glad I'm not him. Wow. Tax collector's not even probably realizing that the Pharisee is in the same room with him because he's so absorbed in what is going on. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said to God, downcast eyes, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, Jesus says, rather than the other, he went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. They're flipping it upside down here, Jesus says. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exhausted. You see, on the surface, the Pharisee looks great. He looks great. And actually, his reputation among the people on that, on, that, on that day and age, it was great. The Pharisees had a good reputation. They were seen as righteous. They were seen as leaders in the, in the Jewish religion. They were seen as the people to look up to. The problem was, God doesn't so much look at the outward condition. He looks at the inward heart. So on the surface, the Pharisee looks great. He looks like he has it all together. On the surface, he's not a robber. He's not an evildoer. He's not an adulterer on the surface. On the surface, this guy is super pious, super righteous. He fasts twice a week. Again, that's twice more than most people that I've ever met in my life. Uh, He gives um, 10% of everything he gets to the temple. Well, that's more than like 90% of people in the church. Again, not a shot. That's a statistic. Uh, he was, the Pharisees were so like legalistic about the law that they would even like grow stuff in their garden, for example. We're not just talking about 10% of the money that they made. They would actually take 10% of even the herbs and the spices that they had in their garden. And if they were growing a bunch of like dill or, or, or basil or something, they would take the basil out no matter how much that it was. Even if it was a little tiny bit, they would take up the basil from their little personal garden and they would weigh out. You know how much basil weighs? by the way, but they would weigh out basil or measure out basil. 10% of the basil is going to God. 90% 10% to God. And they were so legalistic and so good about that that they started to think that it was because of how awesome they were and not about God and his mercy or anything. The Pharisee was now rich in his own sight. He had no need for God. 
He was doing it all himself. His righteousness was found in himself. But the tax collector, on the other hand, now the tax collector on the outside, tax collectors were almost universally hated. Tax collectors oftentimes lived a life of open wickedness. They were hated and despised. They were crooked and cruel. If you found, if a tax collector caught you on the road when you're, you know, maybe you're going from one town to another and you have like a little business or something and you have like your donkey and your cart and you're bringing your stuff and you're trying to go sell things over here or you're returning from this other town and you're going back to, well, the tax collector is going to find you. And the tax collector is going to stop you. And the tax collector is going to make you take all the stuff off your donkey, unpack all of your packages, take everything off your cart, go through all of your stuff, look at your correspondence, wants to read your mail, go through that, personal or business related, didn't matter, hassle you, find tons of ways and creative ways to charge you and upcharge you and upcharge you again and demand this money and payment as taxes and then crookedly look for bribes on top of it and be like, yeah, you can pay all that, but I need another thousand bucks, man. Sorry, I just need another thousand bucks. This is, this is your tax collector tax that you got to pay on top of all your other taxes. You see, tax collectors were known for that, were famous for that. You see this, it's not in the notes, but you see this in, uh, in Luke, I believe it's Luke chapter 19. Yeah, it's Luke chapter 19 with Zacchaeus. Jesus meets this guy, Zacchaeus, who's also a tax collector. He says, they says that he was very wealthy, first of all. But when he comes into contact with Jesus, the thing that he says to Jesus is, I will pay back four times what I stole if I robbed anybody. If I stole from anybody, I will pay them back four times what I stole from them. Right? Why do you think he said that? Because he probably stole from them because he was a tax collector. Hello. And that this right here is a tax collector story with a tax collector and a Pharisee where on the outside, the Pharisee looks great. And on the outside, the tax collector looks terrible. But what's the spiritual reality going on inside either of them? What's the spiritual reality? What's the truth of their heart? Which one of them is poor in spirit? And which one of them is a haughty, proud spirit that doesn't need God anymore because they got it all in themselves? They're good enough on their own. They don't need God no more. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee thought he was rich. But the tax collector knew he was poor. The Pharisee tithed right down to the basil, so confident in his own righteousness that he had no need for God. And he was also way too focused on other people's sin, right? He was real quick to look at all the other people and call them a bunch of sinners and losers. Whereas the tax collector had nothing to say about other people because he was so focused on God and on his own brokenness. He was just before God poor in spirit. Had nothing to say about other people. we got to be careful, church, when we point the finger. Tax collector was broken with the guilt of his own sin. Jesus had something very creative to say about the Pharisees, by the way, right? He, he said in uh, Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You guys are hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, what? You're full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. By the way, the Pharisees were incredibly offended at this statement. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. 
And the people love to like meet them and, the, and be like, oh, teacher, oh, teacher. And the, and the Pharisees love to be called teacher and they love to be called like father and whatever. Oh, this is great. Yes, I totally am. I'm the author. Oh, I love it. They just like would bask in the, in the compliments of the people. In the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness and wickedness. And about the spirit of the tax collector, right? The Bible says this in Isaiah 66, 2. It says, but on this one, on this one I will look. On this person I will look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Right? Which one was doing that? The Pharisee or the tax collector? Clearly the tax collector. The Pharisee thought he was righteous, perceived himself as not needing a thing from God, even though he was in a terrible state. It reminds me of Revelation which, in my, in my opinion, is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. Not scariest books. This is like one of the scariest verses in what could be considered one of the scariest books of the Bible, right? One of the scariest verses. It starts in Revelation chapter 3. So it's like, it's the letters to the seven churches. And this is, this is the one to the church of Laodicea. Laodicea was... Uh, was very wealthy, physically wealthy, not just like wealthy in spirit or whatever or proud or something like that. They were physically wealthy. Like there's excavations of that city that happened today, and they're able to tell just by the excavations that that was a very rich and wealthy city. It was just like the way that it was, the, the place that it was situated, the trade that happened there. They can tell by the different types of like art and architecture that, that they found in these excavations, that they found monuments and different things that show that this city was an affluent city here, okay? Laodicea city was affluent and was wealthy, and this is the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, who the ruler of God's creation. And what does he have to say to this church? He says, I know your deeds. Woo! That you're neither hot nor cold. You're neither cold nor hot. How I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are what? Lukewarm. Neither hot or cold. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to have nothing to do with you. Your name will not be in my mouth. I know your deeds. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. They're trusting in their own wealth. But you do not realize that you are what you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me. Buy from me, Jesus says, where the things of value, of true value, really come from. Buy from Jesus gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. They thought they didn't need a thing. They were not poor in spirit. They were not poor in actuality, and they were not poor in spirits. They thought that they were all set. And somehow that like, idea of being wealthy and being comfortable was tied with that lukewarmness that Jesus said about them and warned them about. 
There was something real close there, tied between wealth and comfort and lukewarmness. And Jesus was warning them, I know your deeds. I know what you do and what you don't do. I know what you value and what you don't value. I know what you can see with your eyes and what you can't see. Take this, put this on your eyes so that you can see with my eyes. Buy that from me. You see, worldly wealth provides a false sense of comfort. Not everyone. Not always. Remember, there are plenty of people, there's a, there's a number of people in the Bible that were wealthy people, but they were still poor in spirit because they were able to not trust in their wealth. They were able to not trust in their riches. They were able to oftentimes be able to give away some of that even when it hurt because they didn't want that to be the God of their life. They wanted to be poor in spirit. They wanted to be before God and say, Lord, it doesn't matter what I have in this life. It doesn't matter if I have riches. It doesn't matter if I have family and children and houses or cars or planes or whatever that it might be. Lord, that stuff doesn't matter if I don't have you. I'm nothing without you. Those riches don't comfort me. That wealth doesn't comfort me. Those things that I have, they do not comfort me. Those blessings as the world calls them are not blessings to me in comparison to you, oh God. Imagine that for a testimony when those people passed away and stood before their Lord. What a testimony. So cool. So cool. Worldly wealth provides a false sense of comfort. Maybe you don't like that. Maybe you don't believe me. Well, Jesus said it way clear in Luke uh, chapter 6. This one's uncomfortable. 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Ouch. And Jesus is talking to a church in Laodicea in that letter. He's talking to a church. He's telling the church, you say that you're rich. You don't have need for everything. And Jesus is saying, hey, woe to you, you who are rich. You've already received your comfort. Ladies and gentlemen, do not be deceived into finding your comfort in the things of this world. Think about it. When you're already comfortable, when we're comfortable in life, what more do we need? For example, there's, there's, there's nights where I'll like sit at home and I'll sit on my, my favorite, most comfortable chair, uh, watch my favorite show, uh, eat my favorite snack, uh, hang out with my favorite people. And what do I need at that point in time? What more do I need? I need nothing because I'm comfortable. Now let's like extrapolate that and amplify that to life where like I have everything that I need. I don't need anything else. I am self-sufficient in myself. I have all this stuff and I trust that that stuff's going to be my comfort when we get caught up in trusting things. We're missing the true blessing. Tim Keller, Tim Keller is a, uh, he's like a very famous like pastor, uh, author, Christian guy. He's, he's written a bunch of books. He's, he's like pretty, I would say he's very well respected in, in uh, the church world. And Tim Keller's been around for a long time. I think that somewhat recently he may be um, semi-retired or something. He might have, I think he like stopped being a pastor. He stepped back and kind of focused on some other things like being an author and whatever. But this year, uh, 2020, Tim Keller uh, made an announcement and the announcement was that, that he had um, cancer and, and I believe it's pancreatic cancer, right? Which 
Don't quote me on it, but I believe it's pancreatic cancer, which is, which is not a great prognosis, right? So he made this announcement, and he was talking about it, and he was talking about the idea of, like, you know, how it feels and, like, what it means to his family and stuff. And, and I'm going to paraphrase what he said because I, I thought it was powerful. Uh, he said the fact that he has cancer doesn't indict God, right? It doesn't mean that God is not good. Tim Keller said the fact that he has cancer is a reminder to him not to look for comfort in this world. Not to look for comfort in this world. A reminder to him that this world is ultimately not his home, right? That this world is ultimately uh, uh, not going to be where he can find his salvation, that his hope is not in this world and in his family and in his children and in his house and in how well it's decorated and in how comfortable it is or how nice his car is or how much money he has or his bank account or anything like that. His comfort, he was reminded that his comfort is not found in this world. The only comfort for him is Jesus Christ. Can we say that today? Can you and I say that today? That our comfort is only found in Jesus. That our riches are only found in Jesus. That our blessing is only found in Jesus. Can we really say that? Wealth and comfort can quickly lead to non-reliance on God. It can lead to lukewarmness even for professing believers. Which is tough for us as Americans because even our poor are better off than quite a few other nations poor. They would be considered not poor in other nations. Not every nation. I didn't say that. Keep in mind I've been to other nations. I've done traveling. I've lived in, in South America and stuff. I, I know. I know. I've also been homeless, so I know, right? Um, being poor in America while terrible in its own right, and I'm not making light of it. I'm not. It is no fun not being able to pay your bills and not knowing where your food is coming from and having to trust other people to help you out and having to go to <clears throat> shelters and having to go to ministries looking for handouts and stuff. And again, I've been there. I know. But if we're too comfortable, how can we understand our need? The question that we need to ask ourselves this morning, I think, and I think it's the question and why that verse in Revelation is so scary. Because it always encourages the reader to ask themselves the same question. Are we lukewarm? Are we lukewarm? Jesus says, I prefer you either hot or you're cold. You're in or you're out. Don't ride the fence, baby. Don't ride the fence. Are we lukewarm? Could we take it or leave it? Is Jesus like, yeah, it's cool. Like, yeah, my mom's a Christian. I'm a Christian too. <laughs> anyway, let's back off to real business of everyday life, right? Is that what it is to us? There's been times in my life where that's what it's been to me. Are we lukewarm? Man, I'm going to tell a story. Um, it's kind of uncomfortable. So, like, maybe like two weeks ago when I started to uh, come up with, um, started to think about this message and, like, what I was going to say, I was outside um, 
I was outside somewhere, and I was with somebody, and we were like walking around outside, and there was a, there was a, like a construction cone. And we knocked over the construction cone as we walked by, not thinking, I think we kind of tripped over it or whatever, knocked it over. And to our surprise, underneath that construction cone happened to be a bird's nest. And we were only alerted to that because of the loud chirps and cries of the baby birds that had just had their shelter kind of pulled away. And they were just like exposed now on the ground in this bird nest. And there was these three baby birds. And two of them just went darting off, running around, running everywhere, chirp, 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 like kind of screaming or whatever. And one of them stayed in the nest. And it was like, oh, shoot, like me and the other guy, we kind of didn't know what to do. And we're like, okay. So we, so we left it. We left it there. Didn't know what to do. Um, hoping that the, the mother would come back or whatever, right? But didn't think too much about it. So then the next day, I happened to be outside with somebody else. And we we're walking around and, and uh, didn't even realize it was in the same area. But found myself in the same area where the day before we had knocked over the cone and the bird's nest was there. And I only found out that I was in the same area because I was, happened to be looking down and I was, as I was walking. And my eye caught something strange. So then I like, looked closer and then I realized that it was the bird's nest. And then I realized what I was looking at. And I was looking at three dead baby birds snuggled together in this bird's nest on the ground. And I got in my car that day. I don't know why it affected me, man. It just affected me, right? Maybe you can, 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 can relate to that. It just affected me. It was, like, so sad that, like, they had, like, tripped around and gone all over the place. But when it came to the end, they, like, came to find each other, right, for comfort. And they're birds. And they died next to each other, these three little baby birds. And I drove home that day, and I, and I cried like a baby. <laughs> it's so stupid, right? I hate to admit that in front of people, but, like, I, I just, it just got me. It just got me. And I was, like, super, like, sad about it. And I was driving home. And I got, I, I, you know, I, I live a considerable way away, and I got off at my exit, and I came to the bottom of, of where there's the lights, and I was about to, to make a right at the traffic light, and there was, like, a homeless guy on the side of the road, and he was, like, he was getting ready to start putting up a sign. Now, I'd never seen a sign. I'd never seen anybody in my history of living there fly a sign, right, as you would say, like, in homeless lingo, fly a sign there, right, looking for, looking for, like, spare change or whatever at the bottom of that exit. Never. I've never seen it before. I've never seen it since. But that day, there was a man getting ready to, to fly a sign looking for help at the bottom of the exit at the light where people stop. And I cried my eyes out the way home about three birds that died in the backyard when birds die every day out in the woods all over the place. We have no idea. But I rolled my eyes at the thought of a homeless guy flying a sign in my neighborhood at the bottom of the hill at the lights. I rolled my eyes at that. I cried my eyes out over some birds, but I rolled my eyes out of a man created in the image of God. Jesus says about people, he says, aren't you worth more than a flock of sparrows? Maybe we need salve to see today. Maybe we need to have our hearts broken for what breaks God's heart. Maybe we need to cry out at the injustice, cry out at the oppression. Maybe we need to be reminded to be hot or cold, to be in or out. To have the same mission as Jesus. To bring sight for the blind. To free the oppressed. To break the chains off the prisoners. Are we lukewarm? And I was struck in my heart in that moment. Rolling my eyes at this guy. After crying my eyes out about some birds. I was struck in my heart. 
It was like God was getting me. You care about this, but you don't care about that, Randy. Randy, do you care about the poor? Do you care about injustice? Do you care about oppression? Do you care about unjust scales? Do we care about these things that go on every day in the world, in the culture, in the country, in the society around us, all over the world? Do we care about the things that God cares about? Are we poor enough in spirit where we put our political positions away, where we put our, our, our thoughts and we put our rationalities and we put everything at the altar of Jesus and we say, Lord, that you would give me your eyes eyes to see what breaks your heart, Lord, that I am before you on my knees. You are Lord, God. I'm just a man. I don't even know what being blessed is. I think being blessed is about having stuff, God, that you would help me, Lord. If we're not poor in spirit, how can the gospel be good news to us? If we don't recognize our need for a Savior, if we don't see our inherent wretchedness outside of Jesus, what good is a Savior? That was the problem with the Pharisee. He didn't see his inner wretchedness. He didn't see his brokenness. He wanted to see that everything was good and awesome, and he was doing this and he was doing that. Awesome, great, whatever. He had no need for Jesus. face to face with our wretchedness apart from Jesus, face to face with our nakedness, face to face with our sin. Only when we become face to face with our spiritual poverty can we say what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? And he says, Jesus, Thank God for Jesus. That's being poor in spirit. Lord. Lord, I just thank you, God. I thank you not. I don't thank you because I'm poor in spirit, because I don't think that I am so often, Lord. I forget about you all the time, God. I forget about your eyes and your heart all the time, Lord. I get caught up in comfort. I get caught up in distractions. I get caught up in, in daydreams and, and whatever, Lord God. I get caught up in so many things, Lord. But you don't get caught up in anything because you're always there. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever, Lord. Your heart for the lost and for the poor, for the widow, the orphan, and the oppressed, God. Your heart for injustice, Lord. Your heart burns like fire, God. Help us. To see with your eyes, Lord. Help us to love with your love, Lord. Help us to be not lukewarm, God. Thank you, Jesus, for your amazing love for us. Even when we so often miss the mark, God. We might be faithless, God, but you are faithful, Lord. And we throw ourselves at your mercy today, God. Praise you, O Lord. For you and only you are good, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.